This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. Good morning. I'm Nancy Searcy. Today our scripture reading will be from two passages in the book of Matthew. First, Matthew 3, 13 through 17, and then from the end of Matthew's gospel, chapters 28, chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. First, Matthew 3, 13, 17 is found on page 808 in the, in the Pew Bible. Matthew 3, 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The second passage is Matthew 28, 16 through 20, and it is found on page 835 in the Pew Bibles. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Pray with me, please. Dear Heavenly Father, we bless your presence in our lives and our hearts. We thank you for the blessings you've already given us and for future blessings. We thank you for the gift of your Son who died in our place for our sins. Thank you for always being with us, walking beside us, and holding our hand as we walk down the path you have chosen for us. We know we are never alone, that you are always with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Hey, let me add my welcome and say I'm glad you're here. My name is Chris. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here and get a chance to bring God's word to us this morning. I had a mentor that said, the most important thought you will ever think is what you think when you think about God because it will determine everything else about you. The most important thought you will ever think is what you think when you think about God, 
because it will determine everything else about you. And what we learn in those kind of statements is you actually live, whether you're conscious of it or not, by your understanding of who God is. And you don't just have one understanding of him like there's just one image in your mind. Actually, our image of God is made up of a thousand passages, experiences, relationships, sermons, prayers, struggles, sufferings, people that have walked with you, things you've longed for, things that you prayed about that you didn't get, things you prayed about that you did get. All of those make up this portrait of how you see God. So my mentor said, the most important thought you'll ever think is what you think when you think about God. It's actually a pretty complex idea to say, who is this God that we're thinking about? And I had this image in my mind of, of a photo mosaic. Do you remember from the 1990s when these were big? Maybe on the screen here we'll pull up this, this image. Now, I don't, I don't mean that you have an image of God as a cat in your mind. That's not what I mean. What I mean here is these photo mosaics are pictures of something, but they're made up of thousands of little pictures. So like in Star Wars fans, maybe you have a picture of Yoda, and it's like a picture of Yoda. But if you zoom in, you have thousands of little scenes from Star Wars making up that big picture. In my mind, when we think about God, it's, it's kind of like that. You can zoom out and see God for who he is, but when you ask, why do I see him like that, there's lots of little moments there's things that you've longed for. There's some, some dark things in that picture. And I, I don't mean like sin that God has, but there's moments that have been difficult. And the scriptures say we see through a, a dark glass dimly right now. So there's shadowy things that we see that we don't quite understand. And that still makes up your portrait of God. And there's things that are really clear and bright where you feel like God spoke to you, God was there. That's also in your portrait of God. And I think like parenting, pastoring is honoring the fact that you have lots of moments. And I say that because like I don't believe my parenting is a series of speeches that I've given to my kids. It's actually thousands of little moments that paint this portrait for them of what it means to be loved and follow after God. And it's, it's little exchanges and it's meals and it's um, times in the car and it's time tucking them in bed and it's times of failure and it's times of, of brokenness. And sometimes it's helpful as we kind of journey through as parents just to stop for a little bit and just hit pause and say, what's actually in that portrait? What what are you seeing? So for example, as a parent, I think it's really important when we're watching a movie and an image comes across the screen or or an idea from a different worldview pops up, just to, to stop for a second and say, hey, did you catch that? Did you catch that that movie just told you your values in your body or that, that your values and what other people think about you? Or did you catch that idea that if you owned something, you would be kind of more amazing and people would respect you? And, and my kids joke like they don't appreciate that when I stop the movie. They'll say funny things like, Dad, can we please just keep watching the movie? I know they actually love that moment when I'm teaching them diligently in that space. But sometimes they'll joke with me like they don't actually appreciate that. Well, actually, for the last couple of weeks, what we've done is just kind of pause for a second on this one passage. And so maybe you're like my kids going, hey, come on, we're doing a series through the book of Matthew, not just the same passage in the book of Matthew, because we've stopped for three weeks now on the baptism of Jesus. And the reason why is I think in this little portrait, we see something vastly important for us. It's actually a demonstration or a picture or a display of who our God actually is. So you have lots of these little snapshots up there. What you need to understand is that our God is mysterious. He exists eternally as one essence, one being in three persons. 
So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all are God, distinct in their personhood, but they share divine essence in a way that's not conflicted, in a way that's not blurred, in a way that's not just God as blob, in a way that actually has a distinction so that when you pray to the Father, there's a distinct person. When, when you encounter the love of the Son, it's a distinct person. When you, when you ask the Spirit of God to help you, it's a distinct person. And yet most of us have kind of grown up with just kind of, kind of God in a blender all blurred together, and we don't really have a crisp view of God. Now, full disclosure, I won't tighten everything up just this morning, but I do think in this moment, like a dad watching a movie, it's important for a pastor to stop and go, oh, here's a scene where we see God and who he is, right? Did you catch that? So at the baptism, you have Jesus the Son, you have the voice of the Father coming down from heaven, and then you have the Spirit there. So in one scene, you have all three members of the Trinity on display for us. And you, you see that throughout the scriptures in different prayers and in different scenes, but here's one of those spots where it just felt worth it to stop and pause. And so last week, Stephen did a great job just kind of walking through kind of the nuts and bolts of what, what is this orthodox teaching of who God is, that there's just one God, that the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit's God, and yet, yet they're distinct from each other. So he walked through that. If you missed it last week, I won't try to summarize his sermon now, but it was really helpful just to put the data on the table for us. Now what I want to do this morning is take that data and say, okay, if that's who God is and how he exists, then how do we live in light of that? Right? Because when you're parenting, you're not just giving like little lessons out to your kids. You actually want that to shape them. And the scripture says the way that we think about God isn't just academic. Like Psalm 27 says, in a jam, when the psalmist is, is backed against the wall, everything is caving in. What he wants to do is go to the sanctuary and gaze upon the beauty of God because that will change everything else. So in a jam, in a moment of crisis, what he wants is not answers. He wants to see God for who he is. And the rest of that psalm then goes on to form petitions and prayers that the psalmist prays in light of who God is. So our view of God, it really is the most important thought we will ever think when we think. Because it shapes everything else about you. And if you knew that God was relational, that that he was a welcoming God, that he was the kind of God that existed in unity and diversity, that he was actually a praying God, and that he was a missional God, I think those portraits and snapshots would begin to fill out some of the gaps and questions that we have as we ask, who is this God and how do I relate to him? You can pull that image down because it'll probably get distracting. I'm going to get distracted by it. Thank you. Hey, so in that space, I want to just put in front of you, like, what does it mean that God is a triune relational God? That he exists as three persons in one essence. And here's the logic of what I want to do. How does God actually exist? How is he and what does he do? How does he act? And then if we're made in his image, what does that mean for how we think about ourselves and how we act? Just, just really simple. How is God and how does he act? And if we're made in his image as his creatures, then what does that mean for what we long for, how we act, how we respond? I want to give some Trinitarian foundation to what it means for us to be a community of faith. Really asking if God is a relational God, how does that shape the relationships that we have? That's my sole goal this morning. And so, so I kind of named these five. I want to talk about God as a relational God. Just don't want to miss that fact. I want to talk about God as a welcoming God. I want to talk about God that exists with unity and diversity, which has massive implications for how we see each other and those that are different than us. And God as a praying God, that the Son teaches us to pray to the Father. The Spirit actually helps and intercedes for us. I want to just unpack that for a second. And then the idea that God is a missional God. He's an outward-facing, going God, like we read in this passage in Matthew 28. Those are 
my hopes. So, so Stephen's sermon last week is super helpful. If you're wanting more, I recommend this book to you by Michael Reeves called Delighting in the Trinity. It's a short read. You can see that it's thin. It's one of the first books I read about the Trinity that I've put down multiple times just to thank God for who he is and to worship. It's pretty witty. It's really well written. There's lots of quotes, but he unpacks for us what it means in the phrase he says that the, the doctrine of the Trinity is actually the cockpit of our faith. It's like the starting place. It controls everything else about how we live and think. And I didn't grow up thinking that way. For me, the Doctrine of the Trinity was like this kind of throwaway academic idea for people who had degrees, who lived in ivory towers. The rest of us were just trying to survive. And I actually realized this triune God that we can adore and worship is actually how we survive. Thinking about him, gazing upon his beauty, how he exists is how we relate to him and how it changes everything about us. So, so that's a book that will help you. Stephen's sermon was super helpful, so I promise I won't repeat everything he says except this one idea. It's okay that our God is beautifully complex and that you will never fully understand him. That actually resizes us in a really helpful way as creatures, that there's things about God who made us we can't possibly wrap our mind around. And Stephen did a great job last week just saying, hey, we should actually kind of expect that. That it's mysterious, the God of the universe who holds everything sovereignly together, that we would have trouble wrapping our minds around all of what that means is actually to be expected. I think it should rest you a little bit, that you don't have to have him figured out to be able to relate to him. And it should compel you to actually get to know him and worship him. Because though he is infinitely complex, he's actually mercifully revealed himself to us. You can't know everything about God, but God has told you what you need to know so that you can relate to him as Father through the Son by the Spirit. And in that space, we're we're invited actually into a long relationship with the triune God that will last for forever. And I think actually eternity won't give us enough time to fully understand who he is. He's that beautiful. But as you think about God, it's the most important thought you'll ever think because it shapes everything else about you. So let's just talk about what it means that our God is a relational God. I'm going to flip around a little bit um, in some different passages. Let's just start back in Genesis chapter 1 where this thing very, very uh, first starts. It's the page 1 of your few Bible, I believe. The Bible is aimed at telling us not scientific facts, but our origin story of where we come from. And it would make sense, right, if we're just accidents, if we just evolved out of nothing, if there was no design, then how we treat each other, what we do with our gender, all that stuff is up for grabs. But if God actually has a design for us, if he created us male and female in his image, then there's actually something good that he's doing. So look with me in chapter 1, verse 26. This is the way God starts to reveal himself. He says, and God said, let us in a plurality Make man in our image. So right away, even before they really understood what was going on, God's revealing that he is a relational God. He says, let us make man in our likeness uh, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So God reveals himself as a relational God right out the gate. And then he says, you're actually made in my image as male and female. And it takes a plurality, right? More than just one. The singularity of a male or singularity of a female won't capture all of who God is. And we're not saying primarily that God has these sort of sexual organs. What we're saying is there's a unity and a diversity. There's a plurality in the personhood of God. He exists in multiple persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet in a oneness. We'll see in chapter 2 of Genesis that this 
man and female, as they go forward and Adam first sees his wife, it says that they are now one flesh. So you have a diversity, you have a relationship with a unity and a oneness. The way God designed the very fabric of the universe is in a relational way. Even the phrase to trust Jesus is a relational category. The Bible says you can sum up the law like this, to love God and to love your neighbor. Those are relational categories. So if you're wondering what Christianity is about, it's not primarily giving assent to a bunch of doctrines or agreeing to a certain kind of behavior or holding on to a certain kind of practice. It is a relationship with God himself. The triune God exists in community, and he welcomes you into that. Which is huge when you think about how many times you wonder if you even matter or if someone sees you or does anybody care about what you think or where you are or how you live or what you're doing. To hear that God is a relational God. He relates to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in relational categories. And sin is the thing that turns us inward on ourselves and breaks humanity. Sin by itself is narcissistic and self-focused, but God is a relational God, a giving God. Which takes me to my second point. Not only is he relational, he's a welcoming God, which means he involves us in what he's doing. Catch this. God is sufficient in of himself. He wasn't lonely. He didn't have to create us because he didn't have something to do. Because he's eternally existed in relationship, he was fully sufficient in himself. In the essence of who he is as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he had everything he ever needed. So when he creates, it's not to fill a gap or a void. It's to welcome us into relationship, really to share with us his beauty, his glory, his goodness. Because God has eternally been loving, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when he creates us in his image and welcomes us into a relationship, what the eternal God of the universe is doing is pouring out upon us the love that he has had in himself for all eternity. Throw that snapshot up in your portrait of God. And you wonder because you prayed and he didn't give you exactly what you asked for, is he a good God or is he care? Is he actually inviting? Is he actually trustworthy? Here's God, the very act of creation is a welcoming of broken humanity into this relationship that he has with himself, that he is permanently satisfied in himself. Which is fascinating because that means God doesn't need something from you. He actually gives to you. To relate to Jesus and to trust him is not now to pay him back for all that he gave you. It's actually to respond simply to what he's done. Faith is responding to the welcome of God, right? It's the logic is simple that that if God is creating us and welcoming us in, then we actually should be both a welcoming people and should receive his welcome, right? He's not just relational. He's, He's generous in how he is relational, And you've got all kinds of questions about suffering and all kinds of questions about pain. And just throw up on that portrait of God these bright images that here is God relating to you generously in love, actually welcoming you, Jesus says in John 17, into the eternal love that he has shared. Just as the Father and Son are one, he says we're we're welcoming them into that same oneness. So we get brought into this triune love as his creatures, far from tolerating you far from using you, far from having demands on you, here is the triune God of the universe welcoming you. You. And I know like we can't even tie like our emotional shoes. We're such a mess. We often do wonder, does anybody actually want us around? And here is God fully sufficient in himself welcoming you. 
He, he made you exactly as you are. He put you in a certain family, in a certain place, at a certain time. The scriptures say so that you would actually seek him, that you would actually respond to his welcome. So he's relational and he's welcoming. And he exists, number three, in a unity and a diversity. In God, there's an equality and a distinction. I've wrestled all week with and I should read one of the creeds to you, and I think I'm not going to do it. But, but the Nicene Creed is aimed at articulating how is it that God exists in three persons with unity. And there's just one God, and yet the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. You can just Google the Nicene Creed. It's actually really beautifully written in the fourth century as Christians were wrestling with how do we talk about this? How do we actually express the idea that they're different and yet they're, they're equal? So what you have now in God himself is a category for there to be distinction and diversity with equality. So, so just roll to, to marriage, right? To have a man and a woman made in God's image, one flesh, means there are differences, but not one of ranking and importance. There is equality. The Christian doctrine of the Trinity actually esteems women and men, puts them in a marriage relationship where we're no longer asking, because we have different roles, are we ranked differently? We have a distinct understanding that God has actually made us different, but with unity and equality. It's actually heresy to say that the Father is more important than the Son, even though the Son submits to the Father. Now you have categories of actually I can lay down my rights to somebody else and them not be superior to me, me just being responding to love to them. So a passage like 1 Corinthians 11 gives us a really fascinating portrait here. It says that the son submits to the father just like the the man submits to Christ and and the woman submits to the son. And you go like, oh, there's that S word. I hate that S word. What happens in that passage, though, is we see it redeemed to say, no, it's not that the son is less than the father. And so in our relationships, we can actually defer to one another in ways that are beautifully designed in the Trinitarian God. And later in that passage, he'll go on and say, and man is not independent of woman, nor is woman independent of man. Right? They're, they're in a way enmeshed with each other, right? in a way that's not like clinically enmeshed, in a way that's actually beautifully interdependent. So God is a being that permanently, always has existed in one essence, in three distinct persons, but full equality and a distinction in roles, which gives us in the church, if we're asking, if we're made in his image, what does that mean for us? That we can have differences. We can be made in different ways. We can have different capacities, different gifts, different roles, even in the church, and those not be statements about equality because God is equally God, the Spirit, the Son, and the Father, and yet they are distinct. A strong Trinitarian theology will actually make us unified as a people. It will squish the desire that we have for ranking each other and comparing ourselves with each other. To stop and say, there's one God and he's made us one actually brings us into a beautiful relationship with him, which actually diminishes those desires for competing for ranking, for judging, for feeling insecure, for feeling arrogant. It diminishes those because of what Christ has done for us. And then it frees us to actually relate to each other. And you're going like, man, I don't know. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it's right after this passage of this uh, submission text. He just goes right into gifts that God has given us. And we see in 1 Corinthians 12, it's on page 959 in your pew Bible. Listen to the way Paul talks about the church and gifts. He's saying, because there's a oneness in God himself, 
you can have oneness and still have differences, which like, is a fundamental question you have. Right? We always are ranking and always are comparing. When you're left to build your own identity, you're left with insecurity of I'm not as good as you, therefore I have to separate from you, or arrogance and superiority. I'm better than you, therefore I deserve something that you don't have. But that is the human existence. Right? So it makes us capable of doing horrific things to each other, this insecurity and this pride. But look what he says in chapter 12, verse 4. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all. Did you catch that? Spirit, Lord, God. A triune frame to say God has actually given us, verse 7, each the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, and to another by the same Spirit, by faith in that same Spirit. Another gifts of healing by one Spirit. To another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between the spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. And we go on to read what's going on in the First Corinthian church is, in the Corinthian church is a division and a ranking and a comparing. So let your eyes drop to verse 16. He's talking now as a body that's unified in oneness. And he says, the ear shouldn't say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. I shouldn't feel insecure because I'm made different than you. And drop down to verse 21 of chapter 12. He says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Because you're not like me, I don't actually need you. I'm superior to you. So he names insecurity and pride right after he's described the idea that we're all made in the image of God, unified but diverse. He just goes after the core temptation we have to compare and to rank. And so he wraps the chapter in verse 28. And God has appointed the church first apostles and second prophets and third teachers, then miracles and gifts of healing, helping, administrating all various kinds of tongues. And then he says, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles? The answer is a resounding no. Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the highest gifts. And now I'm going to show you what's most important. And he goes into this beautiful passage. It's often read at, reading, or read at weddings, which is about love. So he goes from the distinctions of how we're made, different gifts that are powerfully expressed in the church. And then he says, you know what you're going to struggle with? Ranking and comparing. So you read 1 Corinthians 13, this famous love chapter. You probably don't have to be a follower of Jesus to have been familiar with this, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not arrogant or rude. He says, more than using your gifts to the fullest, what you most need is love because God's relational. You're living out that relationship. And then he says, don't be irritable or resentful. Don't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoice with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now, surely there's application to weddings, right? Husbands and wives love like that. But think about the church that he's talking to. And he's saying there's differences that you feel in the church. And you're going to be tempted when somebody messes up. We went with their idea instead of your idea to boast about that. You're going to remind them of their wrongdoing at that next committee meeting after we went with their idea and your idea got voted down. And we went with that thing and it cost us more than we thought. In that moment, you're tempted to go, see, I told you we should have gone with my idea. Like that's exactly the context that's going on here. And so instead of ranking and comparing... The triune God of the universe gives us a category by which we can celebrate differences in unity. We don't have to clamor for the same roles, because actually if all of us had the same roles, not only would it be boring, it would be really anemic. 
Paul says, I'm giving you these different gifts that the Spirit of God is so that you can actually be built up. The diversity and the complexity and the beauty of how God's made us is meant to be robust in our expression of how we respond to God. And so the Scriptures will say things like, there's no longer, therefore, male, female, slave, free, barbarian, Scythian. He doesn't mean those distinctions have gone away. What he means is there's now equality because of Christ, right? He's restoring what's been broken in sin because in sin we want to rank and compare and compete against one another. The triune God of the universe exists with a unity and a diversity. This means that we can treasure each other, not just tolerate our differences. It means we don't have to judge or be jealous. It means we can actually reach towards people and celebrate the fact that they see the universe differently than I do. They respond to situations differently than I do. We can actually be in different roles in the church and those not be seen as ways that we rank or compete or compare, but actually celebrate when God advances somebody in our body because that means their gifts are being a gift to our body. The things that normally produce competition and insecurity, this pride and insecurity that we feel, here's what's beautiful. The triune God of the universe sent the Son to die in our place so we could be reconciled to the Father through the Spirit to actually heal that wound. So not only is he just a model for that, he's actually made it possible for us to relate to each other by grace through faith. Isn't that fascinating? That the actually the triune God's work of salvation actually helps us now relate to each other because it, it kills that narcissistic, inward-focused ranking and comparing. Far from a throwaway doctrine about a God that's esoteric, what we see in the Trinity is a beautiful teaching about unity and diversity, about, about distinction and equality that shapes that fundamental question, right? Because you live perpetually in a middle school lunchroom. Okay, well, COVID will be over one day, and we'll get to go back to lunchrooms, kids. And like in those spaces, you know that insecure feeling where you walk in and go, man, what do people think about me? Where am I going to sit? Who's going to welcome me? Hey, that doesn't actually get better. I'm sorry to say, eight-year-olds, your parents still deal with that. I think there's probably 80-year-olds that still deal with that. You walk into this place, and it feels like a giant lunchroom where you're going like, who's going to talk to me? And what if they didn't speak to me? And what if they didn't see me? And what if nobody noticed me? And pastor walked right by, and this person, last week, didn't remember my name at all. And in that moment, we are living in that lunchroom. And the triune God of the universe says we don't have to compare and rank and feel insecure or be prideful. We can give and offer to each other because he exists in unity with diversity. There's a beauty to that that shapes us in ways that I think are really, really, really profound. We won't get to the bottom of it in this life, but we can aspire to it as a community to remind each other of how God exists. Therefore, we don't have to rank and compare. I think there are thousands of applications to that in in our intimate relationships, in our church relationships, and how we see each other. God, God has revealed himself that way, right? So unity is possible because of God's design. And the triune work of God for our salvation and sanctification actually frees us from what usually gets in the way of our unity. Because remember, as God calls us to love, he is love. And he's changing and transforming us by that love. All right, so so God's a relational God. He's a welcoming God. He exists with unity and diversity. And number four, he's a praying God. I had a ton of fun this week just thinking through these images of God who's eternally existed, right? So you would think like as one essence, he doesn't have to pray. He just kind of feels and senses it, right? It's almost like he just kind of rolls his eyes back on his head and he just knows what's going on. And yet what you see is Jesus praying to the Father. 
all the time. You see him get up early. You see him in moments of, of ministry pressure. You see him in places where, where he's actually about to call his disciples and he goes away to the mountain to pray to get some wisdom. You see him in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he goes to the cross. Actually praying to the Father that the Father would actually take this cup away. The very same thing the scriptures say from eternity past, God had already designed that this was going to happen. The Lamb was crucified before time ever began. The Trinitarian God agreed this should happen. And now the Son, in the moment of the garden, as he faces the pressure of what it means to actually be crucified, begins to pray to his Father and ask for help. That blew my mind. To think about God himself, not just like doing his ritual prayers, right, saying some canned prayers. Jesus pouring out his heart to the Father by the Spirit, the same way you and I are invited to pray, in ways that are shaped exactly by his Trinitarian relationship. That the Son is pouring out to the Father. And what does he do? He submits to the Father. That famous phrase of, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So even in that moment, right, of incredible intensity, you see the Son relating to the Father in humility, the way Philippians 2 says he always does. Because he's secure in who he is. He loves and trusts the Father, and yet he's dynamically praying to the Father. Matthew 26, we'll get there months from now again, but that passage is so profound. Think about God himself being a praying God. So when Pastor Adam says, hey, prayer is really important for us, what we mean is that prayer is how God relates to himself. So we're learning to actually relate to God as we learn to pray. And so we see in John 17 this high priestly prayer that Jesus prays. For the sake of time, I won't read it, but what you see there is that Jesus is walking back and forth between the unity that he experiences with the Father and saying, may that be the basis of our unity with each other, and the love that they've always shared for eternity, and now he's welcoming us into it. Like, read John 17 with a worshipful heart. Let it blow your mind that God is welcoming you into that. But Jesus is praying to the Father by the Spirit's help, pouring out his heart. And so when we ask if that's the way God is and how he acts and we're made in his image, what should we do? And we should be a praying people. And not just rope prayers, although, man, do whatever you have to do to get into it, right? There's actually no pressure. What I love about the Scripture is there's no, like, one script. Even the Lord's Prayer as an example for us is not a magic spell that you cast if you say it just right. It's an example to you of how you engage. And so we see formulas throughout the Scriptures that are given to us as just examples to get us started. The triune God, because He's relational and He's welcoming asks you to come and just bring him your heart, the same way we see Jesus pouring out his soul. And as I kind of just worked through this and I prayed for you, um, I got so excited about what this means from Romans chapter 8. So maybe flip over there with me. We'll go one more passage. Romans chapter 8, it's on page 944. If you're in a pew Bible, you can thumb there on your phone. In this space, Paul's tying through like what it means to actually be united to Christ through the Spirit, what it means to have our condemnation removed. It's a beautiful text. It's like, actually like some application from things he's been teaching for quite a while. And listen to this in verse 26. This is, this is just is amazing to me. It says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For when we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. Stop right there. Okay, so God is a Trinitarian praying God, and he actually intercedes for you. So the Spirit of God, when you don't know what to pray, is actually interceding 
for you. And he says, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. Have you felt like that? I mean, there were times this last week, man, as I thought about your suffering and your situation where all I could do is just groan and to stop and say the all-wise, all-powerful God of the universe takes that groan and he interprets that. The Spirit actually helps me to pray. And he searches the hearts, he says in verse 27, and he knows what's in the mind because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that those for whom God loves, all things work together for good, and those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his Son. And one of the ways that we're conformed is through our praying. So not only does Jesus pray for us, not only does he pray to the Father, he actually sent the Spirit to us to actually intercede for us and to help us when we don't know what to pray. The thought that God is a, is a praying God, he's a communicating God, he's a relational God, he's a heart-pouring out God, gives us like permission and examples of how to do that. I, I don't know how you pray. I don't know what you think about prayer. For a lot of us, it feels rote. It feels mechanical. It feels like this thing you feel guilty of that you don't do more. You've heard somebody else pray, and you're like, man, I don't even know if I can do that. What's inviting you, what God's inviting you to this morning is into a relationship with him where he actually does the work, he says, where you could just go like, blah, and he actually engages with you in that space. Hey, that's pretty dang comforting because maybe you've heard us talk about this prayer time on Thursdays at midday and we're gonna have lunch from 11:30 to noon if you want to come and share a sack lunch and then we're gonna pray for an hour and you just go like not it tapping out no way I'm not praying out loud I'm not gonna sound like that I can't use those words and in that space what if you could actually just come Thursday and here's your prayer when it was your turn right what if what you did you felt the freedom just to go God you know what's in my heart I'm here with my brothers and sisters. I want to be a praying person. I don't even know what to put language to in this moment. But God, would you interpret that for me? That God is a Trinitarian God. That he's relational, that he's welcoming, that he exists in unity and diversity, that he prays gives you a ton of hope for where you feel stuck and in a jam praying. I just think that's so beautiful. And I think there's places where there's complexity there that we won't fully understand to the very, very end. And one of the things that Jesus prays for is that people would actually come into a relationship with him. Right? That's John 17, 23, if you're taking notes, which brings me to my last point, that God is a triune missional God. That not only is he welcoming, not only is he relational, he's actually a going God. That he actually comes to us. Right? We couldn't actually make a way to get to God, so he actually comes to us. And the Son is sent by the Father, powered by the Spirit to die on the cross in our place, to pay the penalty for our sin so that we could be in relationship with the Father, so the wrath of the Father could be satisfied, the atoning sacrifice of the Son. And you only can know that and take a hold of that because the Spirit of God draws you to himself. Even your salvation is a Trinitarian act. And what you're sharing with other people is the, the fact that God is a missional, outgoing God. So this passage that we read in Matthew 28, the way Matthew will close his gospel, this, this declaration of who God is, the last thing he says is to go and be on mission the way God is on mission. Matthew 28, verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And you say, Well, I thought it was given to the Father. Yep, to God himself, right? There's a place here where God shares this. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, which is why I actually came, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teach people to observe all that I've commanded, because that's actually where they find life and health and happiness and wholeness. And behold, catch this, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. 
By the Spirit, God is with us all the way to the end in this life, so you're not alone even as you join him on his mission. Friends, far from a throwaway idea, the doctrine of the Trinity helps us relate. It helps us welcome. It helps us appreciate differences. It helps us pray, and it helps us match the heart of God to be a going kind of community. It'll change us as we let these snapshots and portraits kind of take hold in our hearts so that when the, we think about God, this most important thought, most important thing we'll ever think is what we think when we think about God. Do you think of him as a relational God? Do you think of him as a, as a welcoming God? Do you think of him as a, as a God who exists in his essence and his being with unity and diversity, which gives you some sort of framework to relate to other people? Do you see him as a praying God? Do you see him as, as an extending, going, missional God? I think it changes how we live if we engage that way. It gives us freedom to be honest with each other. It lets us actually kind of cultivate organic relationships in this room where we can just go to each other, right? to be welcoming to each other and just simply say, hey, I know I can't get close to you at six, six feet apart. I want to wave at you and ask your name and I can't hear your name so you have to say it again. But I'm trying to actually engage you and I'm going to ask you to a social distance coffee or something like that. Hey, let do you want to Zoom sometime become like part of your vocabulary? Let that, let that weird phrase go like, hey, could we have a video call where I could just hear your story? Like, what, if, what if people were asked on a regular basis, hey, you want to Zoom sometime? And people would be like, what the heck are you talking about? Can we do a video call where I can actually take my mask off and hear some of your story? Because God's made us for relationships, and I want to welcome you into my life, and I want to hear what God's done in yours. We'll be that kind of community when the doctrine of the Trinity actually takes hold. We'll go out to those who don't yet know God, right? We'll be on mission with God. We'll value the differences that we experience, right? Actually, you'll guard the unity of our church to the degree that you're Trinitarian, right? You'll have no toleration for division and slander and things that would divide the body because you understand this unity with diversity that exists in God himself, right? That will actually be a, um, a buffer to you. It will be a uh, a vaccine to the things that actually sometimes haunt us as a community, right? To be unified because God is unified. And, and you'll be a person that prays, that pours out your heart, that trusts that God actually keeps his word when he says he's interceding for you to, to help you engage. In those spaces, I think it changes us and it changes how we relate to God and to other people. And this idea of him kind of being a triune God that's on mission just stops and makes us remember like how he actually came to us, right? It was a Trinitarian act that we remember every week in communion. What we're doing in that moment is saying, God, I believe that you came into my life. You came into our world. You died on the cross in my place in such a way that I could actually be reconciled to the Father. And I'm going to trust you by the Spirit in ways I'm going to receive the sacrifice of the Son, this represented sacrifice in this broken body and shed blood, this little juice and this cup. We're remembering actually the work of the Trinitarian God every week when we take communion. And if that photo mosaic illustration is helpful at all, the reason why we take it every single week is you need lots of examples of God doing that. So weekly, I want to throw a snapshot up on your portrait of who you think God is to remember that he is a sacrificial God who came to you, died in your place to welcome you to himself. And so, so we start by applying the Trinitarian doctrine to our lives by receiving what the Trinitarian God came to accomplish, which was your salvation and redemption. And from that place now, we're free to grow and to try and to take risks 
and to actually celebrate what God's doing in our community. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm so thankful that you're here. Communion is reserved for those who are trusting in Jesus. That could be you this morning for the first time. And so I said, if you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe in this moment you would trust Christ, that what he did on the cross is actually sufficient for all the sin and the brokenness in your life. And if you want to ask him to come relationally into your life, to trust him with your whole heart, you can take communion for the first time today. And then let's talk about it after the service. If you're not there yet, if you're not ready to trust Christ, it's okay. Use this time just to pray. What we're going to do is take some time to remember what Christ did. And actually, I love in um, John, as Jesus is kind of unpacking for us, um, or actually in Matthew, as he's unpacking kind of communion, and we see Paul unpack it in 1 Corinthians 10, we see there's like one loaf. There's a unifying factor in the communion act itself. Right? It's bringing about this unity for us, which is just so beautiful. So what we'll do is we'll peel back this little purple piece. Be careful there because it's connected to the juice, but there's a little spot there where you'll pull the wafer back, and then you'll peel back the next layer, and you can drink the juice. This little chalice is for those who are, have gluten allergies. It's one on the bottom and one there on the top. What I want to do is have Roxanne play a little bit and just give you a chance to go, God, if this is who you are, would you speak to me now? And would you let the sacrifice of Jesus be the starting place by which you apply the good news of the gospel to your life. This is not a list of rules you have to follow now. This is an invitation from a relational God showing you what he did to make all of it possible. So we'll just take a moment. I'll pray for you. And then when you're ready, you'll take communion on your own in your seat. And then Jason will come back up and lead us in our closing song. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Father, thank you for who you are. Spirit, thank you for who you are. And thanks for revealing to us who you are so that we might know you. And I realize, like, talking fast with lots of categories, we will never fully get to the bottom of who you are. And yet you've told us enough that can, we can respond to you. We can actually trust you. We can put our whole hope in you because you did all the work on our behalf. So we worship you for your broken body and shed blood for your sacrifice. Jesus, thank you for dying in our place to make a way for us to be reconciled to the Father that we can have hold now in a relationship with the Spirit through that sacrifice. We just say thank you. Meet with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, friends, when you're ready, take communion, and then we'll sing together again. for joining us online. Leeway Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com.